Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So what he talked about last week, we talked about the fact that Paul is trying to prevent them from being falling prey to these hollowed out deceptions, these deceptions that have no substance. Christ is the center and Christ is everything that matters. We talked about the grace of the gospel. We talked about Jesus being the center of the gospel. And so we kind of move on from there. He says some really, really amazing and large things. So this is where we start in in chapter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So we've kind of seen that. He's already been talking a lot about how Jesus is the center of everything. He is the core. And that that's, that's what matters. That's what we're here about. That's everything that there is. Jesus, he describes Jesus earlier as being the kind of the center of the universe, literally, that he's the one who holds everything together, keeps everything from just kind of flying apart into nothingness and keeps everything spinning. And that he's, he's kind of this active participant in that or by his very nature, he's participant in that. And so he says here in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. We've also talked about the fact that Paul is emphasizing the physical nature of Jesus because the Gnostics were denying it. They were saying that the only things, that, that the flesh can never be righteous and that the, the physical body is always bad and only the spirit is righteous. And so Jesus could not have actually come in the flesh. The problem with that theology is it then leads you to conclude Jesus didn't ever actually die. And as Paul says, if Jesus didn't die and didn't come back to life, then we are more to be pitied than anybody else because we've been, we've been chasing after the wrong thing. So Paul is hitting that over and over. He, he talks about Christ's physical form, physical suffering, and his own physical suffering quite a lot up till now. And now he just kind of summarizes. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And I want you to see what a strange and large thing that is. So his idea is that the, the incredible divinity of God, everything that is God, God is by, by definition transcendent, right? He's bigger than time. He's bigger than space. He lives outside of all of that. The idea that you can take all of that divinity and squish it inside this little tiny frail form of a baby or even just an adult human, and he started as a baby, is, is really astounding. That in itself speaks to the incredible power that God has that he's able to somehow take this transcendent deity and squeeze it into this tiny form. And it's kind of an amazing thing. And it's, it's one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas every year. It's one of the reasons that we are amazed by the incarnation because it truly is an amazing thing. But Paul is only saying this as introduction. <laughs> this is actually not even his point. This is just the beginning of the sentence. The sentence goes on to say this. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. This is one of those verses that's easy to kind of skip over. It's it's very Pauline, right? It's very big. And we don't really know what it means, but we're kind of used to that with Paul. So we'll just kind of mosey on down the road until we find a verse that makes sense to us. Until he says something like, don't lie to each other. And then we're like, I get that. It's tough. It's It's a big statement. And I certainly don't know that I can explain it all, but... If nothing else, I want us to take a moment to marvel at it. I want us to take a moment to be in awe. Because as weird and as amazing as it is, and it is truly amazing, it is the more amazing of the two points, but as amazing as it is that God was able to take all his transcendent nature and squeeze it into the bodily form of Jesus, 
How weird is it that he goes on to say that in Christ, you have been brought to fullness, that we somehow have been brought to fullness. Is that our own fullness? Is that also the fullness of God? You know, it's, it's really not clear, but it's interesting that elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul says that we are the fullness of Jesus as a community. So there is an idea that as a church, he could be saying, we've been brought to fullness. We can fully reflect Christ, which is amazing enough in itself. But he could also be speaking of us, you know, sort of personally, that in Christ, we've become all that it is that we are supposed to be. That we're sort of achieving our own fullness. And I, I want to share this as we move on. And I think you'll see this as we go through the other verses. That that's just often feels not true on the face of it. In other words, as we go through our lives, I don't know if any of us, if I asked you, if I said, are you, are you fully you? <laughs> Have you been brought to fullness? Are you all that you should be? You know, are you self-actualized, to borrow from the secular terms? Are you, are you completely sort of filled with, with everything that, that it should be to be in Christ? You'd probably say no, right? And, and as I think about it today, this is, I told you I'd share a little bit about it. You know, so I think about my own flesh and my own frailty and, and I've always, always, my whole life, I've always wrestled with frailty. I don't like the idea that the, the flesh is difficult. In fact, one of the things that I've never liked about being human is that we have to sleep. Now, let me not confuse you. I enjoy sleep. I don't like that I have to sleep. <laughs> someone, you know, someone said, we'll be sleep in heaven. And my thought was, I think heaven would be being able to sleep whenever you want, but never having to. <laughs> but of course, if we don't have to, it probably wouldn't be that enjoyable to do so. But it always just felt like a waste to me. You know, you go to sleep and there's so much stuff you could be doing. And I used to think if you never had to sleep, how much could you accomplish? Just be amazing. And not just sleep, but just get tired. You know, you get tired, you get sick, you get worn down. For the last couple of years, I've been struggling with uh, a version of long-haul COVID, which is just, I, it's just a, a drag. And it's a fatigue. And it just, I, you know, I'm well in pretty much all other respects. I, I, sometimes I get body aches and sometimes my throat, I think, I, I think my voice isn't as strong as it used to be. But in general, it's just that fatigue. And I find that I don't have everything that I used to have. You know, I mentioned I'm really tired today, so this is interesting. I, I have an Apple Watch, and what I used to do is I used to, there's rings on it that you set for the amount of calories you're going to burn or amount of steps you're going to take, kind of however you look at it. It's really burned calories. But however many calories you're going to burn, you set. I used to have mine set at 850 a day, and, and I used to go past that most days. And what I've had to do over the last year is actually use that as a little bit of a marker of, of when I'm done for the day. And so I lowered the number down to 510. And usually when I hit 510, I know that, that I'm kind of done. There's not going to be a lot left for me that day. Well, I hit 510 about three hours ago today. <laughs> And I just know, you know, I just, I, I, there's a little bit of adrenaline. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, when you're teaching, I know I'm, I'm all right at the moment, but, but I feel it even now. My body just feels heavy. My, my joints are starting to hurt. And my watch has just hit 700, just a second, climbed to 700. It's a drag. I don't like it. And so I read a verse like that that says, in Christ you've been brought to fullness. And I think, but we are so frail. We're so tired. And, and even the circumstances of our life, they're just, they're just, they just, 
they kind of emphasize that for us. You know, I, I told you I hit 510 and, and I got here and I thought, well, all I got to do is get through this and I don't have a leaders meeting tonight and then I get to go home. Then I got a phone call from my wife that she had a flat tire and we had to go, I had to go get her and leave her car there. So I got to go back and deal with that later tonight. And all of that is just life kind of sometimes. It doesn't, changing a tire doesn't feel like the fullness of the deity of Christ, right? <laughs> it's just something you have to do. So what is this about? What does it mean? You know, is, is it that we're supposed to live our lives without flat tires and frail bodies? I don't think it means that because that's not what life happens. That's not what life happens. That's tired speak. That's not what life looks like. <laughs> that's not what happens in life. But let's go on because I do want to see, I do think there are some really amazing things to be said about this, what it means to be in Christ, to have been brought to fullness. It doesn't erase the difficulties of life, the circumstances that are just daily and, and, and tire us out. It doesn't erase the frailty of our physical bodies. It doesn't even erase the struggle we have with living a holy life. So what does it mean? He goes on, he says this, he is the head over every power and authority. This makes sense. Again, he's just reiterating, re reiterating who Jesus is. He is the head over every power. What's that? And emphasizing, I like that. And emphasizing, right. He is just, he's just really uh, emphasizing who he is. He's the head over every power and authority. He is not only the center, but he's the top. But then he goes on and he says this sort of weird phrase. He says, in him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. So here's an interesting thing. So Paul is, is a Greek and a Hebrew both. He is a very, he's a Hebrew, he's been trained. He calls himself a Hebrew among Hebrews. He knows, he thinks like a Hebrew. He acts like a Hebrew. He lives like a Hebrew. He's proud of his Hebrew heritage. He's also been raised by Greeks. And so in some ways he writes like a Greek. But every once in a while, actually more than every once in a while, his Hebrew heritage shows up. And it shows up even in the way he writes this section of the letter. He starts, he says this, he says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. And then he does something that Hebrews do often, which is he speaks in parallelism. When he wants to emphasize something, he simply repeats the same thing he just said in different words. And the hope is that by doing that, you will connect those words together in ways you might not have done before. And so when he says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, that is parallel with, he is head over every power and authority right? It's emphasizing the, the deity of Christ and the power. And in the same way, when he says that in Christ, you have been brought to fullness, that is parallel with in him, even starts the same, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. And the question becomes, what does circumcision have to do with the fullness, with our fullness? So let's talk a little bit about circumcision. Don't worry, we will not get detailed and graphic. Is anybody here, uh, if there's any non-adult here who doesn't know what circumcision is, you are welcome to speak to your parents at a later time. But for those of you who know what circumcision is, in its, in its, in its mechanics, circumcision is something that sort of has to do with cutting away at the, the gender identity of a male, right? Of the physical gender identity of a male. And so it's, it's a label, it's kind of connected to who they are, but it's deeper than that. For the Jews, circumcision was a symbol. It was a ritual. It was something that was supposed to be about identity. And the way it was supposed to identify them was to say, if you are part of the kingdom of God, if you are going to be one of my nation, part of my nation, 
then every male must be circumcised. And the males were circumcised as a demonstration. This is who we are. By cutting at this sort of core of a gender identity, it becomes a, a metaphor, a symbol for changing their identity of who they are. We are the people of God. Now, it's not the only one. There are all sorts of things in the law which talk about things they're supposed to do to separate themselves and keep themselves pure and show who they are. But it's all about your identity. It's all about who you are. But what's interesting is all the way back to Deuteronomy, God says that someday there will be a circumcision of the heart. When the, uh, when the Jews use the term heart, they don't mean the blood-pumping organ in the middle of us. They don't mean that any more than we mean it. In fact, the reason the translators use the word heart is because they know what it means to us, metaphorically, as English readers and speakers. The term heart means kind of the center of who we are. You say, I love you with all my heart. It means I love you with everything I am, right? And so the real, the real word, by the way, in Hebrew is guts or bowels because they used that in the same way we use heart. And so that, that's the word, but in their case, just as in ours, they don't mean the physical anatomy of the guts any more than we need the blood pumping organ of the heart. They also mean the center of who you are. So when God says, someday I will circumcise your hearts, he's saying right now we have this symbolic circumcision that happens physically on the outside. It's exterior. exterior. It doesn't really change anything. It doesn't actually change who you are. But someday I will do a circumcision which will cut at the core of who every single person is, male or female. I will cut at the core. That's what the circumcision of the heart is. I will change the very nature and identity of who you are. And that's why he says... In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. God at the cross circumcises you. He changes the nature of your identity, the core of who you were. And then Paul says this, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. If you take out the modifiers, the very simple phrase he says, well, the very yeah, simple but still complicated to understand, but without the modifiers, the very simple phrase is your whole self was put off when you were circumcised. It's like your nature, who you were, the things that make you you. See, it's hard enough. I used to teach a philosophy class for homeschoolers, and one of the things we'd do is we'd get out a big piece of paper, and I would say, who are you? That would be the question. Who are you? And they would start telling me who they were. And I would start writing these things down. And we'd have a long list by the time we were done. It had to do with their physical appearance or their name, their heritage, who their family was, what they did, their occupation, what their habits were, what their desires were, what their passions were. We wrote all these things down. And then I would say to them, we'd go one by one through the list. And I would say, okay, your appearance. So let me ask you a question. Do you think your appearance might ever change? And they would say, well, probably. And I would say, is it possible your appearance could change radically? And they'd say, well, it's possible. And I would say, so when that happens, will you no longer be you? And they would say, well, no, I'd still be me. So we'd cross that off the list and say, well, that's not you. And then we'd go to the next one and I'd say, is it possible your desires will change? And they would say, yeah, well, sometimes they have. Like what I really, really loved when I was, they always said when I was a kid and they were kids, but you know, that's how kids are. They would say what I really, really loved a long time ago when I was a kid last year was these things and that changed and I would say, could you imagine, just imagine that your desires might change radically? And they would say, yes. And I would say, would you still be you? And they would say, yes. And I would say, and that's not who you are either. And we go through the whole list. And of course, what ends up happening is you cross everything off. <laughs> and you're left with the question, who are you? <laughs> 
it's a really good question. What, what makes the essence of who we are? And I'm not going to necessarily answer that, except I am going to say that the scripture tells us whatever that is, whatever you are left with, if you strip away all the stuff that changes, all the stuff that's sort of temporal, if you strip away all the stuff that doesn't quite reflect exactly who you are, but it's just sort of an easy handle at the moment, whatever you're left with, whatever it is that makes you you, well, this says at the cross, that was removed also. <laughs> Your whole self, it says, was put off. And you might say, why does that have to happen, right? I mean, is God making us less us? I thought this was about fullness. It is. In fact, we're going to get around to that. That is where we're headed. But on the path towards understanding this fullness of who we are, we do come to this moment where we have to understand that he says here that at the cross, when Christ circumcised you, and this is why he uses it, he changed your identity. He put off what you used to be. And now we bring the modifier in and we understand why it was necessary to do so. He says this, your whole self ruled by the flesh. See, the flesh, that's also a term that's a little bit hard to figure out, but I think that if you look through Scripture, in a lot of ways, the flesh is all that stuff that we think of as sort of humanity. It is your physical appearance and your body. It's a lot of that stuff that we wrote on the board that isn't who you are, but it is relevant to who you are. It's your appearance, and it's your, it's your desires, and it's your emotions, and it's your behaviors, and it's your habits, and it's what you do. If you go out and you ask anybody in the world, I mean, if you strike up enough of a conversation with them, they don't just think you're weird, don't just accost strangers with this question, but if you ask them, who are you, how would you define yourself, the answers they give you will all relate to what we call the flesh. They'll tell you about their family relationships, maybe their name. They'll tell you about what they do for a living, that's a very common answer. They'll tell you about what they love to do. That's a common answer. And in our culture, they'll even tell you what, they're, what the things are that they hate. I'm an alcoholic, or I'm a child of alcoholics, or I'm a codependent, or, you know, we, we, we hone in on those identifiers too because that's who we are or who we think we are. But this is what Paul calls the flesh. All these trappings that we think are us but aren't really us. And what happened to us is that Prior to the circumcision, prior to the change of who we were, God tells us that, that we were ruled by the flesh. Paul says elsewhere to believers, you're no longer obligated to the flesh. What he means by that is that before you're a believer, you are obligated to the flesh. You have no choice. You are only comprised of your desires and your habits and your behaviors and your thoughts and your emotions. That's all you got. And if it's all you got, that's what rules you. That's what controls you. You think you're a free being, but it is your appetites. That, that, that rule you. And so Paul says, this is the problem. Your old self was defined by the flesh, so that old self has to be put off. And that's what happens at circumcision. Is this all mysterious? It is. Why are we using metaphors like circumcision? Because to, even to Paul, it's very difficult to describe the power and the concept of what happens at the gospel. The churches, by the way, all sorts of churches, we get all tangled up in arguments about how to most accurately describe the gospel and the problem is we are getting up caught up in arguments to accurately describe something which is infinite in scope and depth and that means that you can take a piece of it and describe it really well and i can take a piece of it and describe it really well and they will be not as close together as you'd like <laughs> and still both be right I mean, there are some things that are incompatible with the gospel. The fact that you are self-sufficient, the fact that you don't need the grace of God, that's incompatible with the gospel. 
But beyond that, there are so many ways to describe the story of what happens at the gospel. And there's so many ways to describe the story of what it means that we were changed in our very natures. But that's what Paul is saying. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. It's really helpful for me to remember when I get frustrated with my frailty or when I'm feeling worn out and tired, it's really helpful for me to remember this is a dragon, it's real, but it's not who I am. It doesn't define me. It's not everything about me. It's not even the core about me. This is, that's part of one of the, one of the, that's one of the reasons we have hope and know that someday in our resurrected bodies, we won't struggle with the same things we do now, but we'll still be us because they aren't really core to who we are. They can be stripped away like an article of clothing, which is an analogy Paul often uses. So the fatigue I feel, the frustration at the fatigue, the frailty, the frustration at the circumstances, these things don't have to define me. I can be the same person with the fullness of Christ while I'm changing a tire, when I'm laying in bed feeling tired, or when I'm preaching a sermon. That's what makes things spiritual. We have this weird sort of thing we do too where we think certain op- occupations and items are spiritual and others are secular. And what Jesus seemed to believe and seemed to think was that it's our spirituality that makes these things spiritual or not. So he says that your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And then he tells us even more strongly what he means by the phrase put off. What does that mean? He's describing it like an article of clothing. It's an analogy he's used before, but he's about to mix his metaphors. Because now he says, not only is your whole self ruled by the flesh, the self that was ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, but he says, having been buried with him in baptism. You don't bury something that's alive. So when Paul says that your self ruled by the flesh has been put off, he means your self ruled by the flesh has died and has been buried. Paul says elsewhere that we've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer we, that we, who live, but it's Christ that lives in us. He, get, he has this understanding that, again, he's reaching to describe in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the human frailty of our minds this infinite idea that what happened at the cross is that we were circumcised, our nature was changed, our identity was changed, and as that happens, it's not like our old nature hangs out. It's not like we're always fighting with ourselves. You cannot win when you're fighting with yourself. You cannot Always be victorious. In other words, anytime you are victorious, you also are defeated if the battle's with yourself. And so Paul is reminding us, no, no, who you are isn't hanging out. That's not your battle. Your battle isn't with you. You are someone else now. You have been changed. The core of your nature has been changed. That's not where your battle is. That has died. That you that was obligated to the flesh, that you that was ruled by the flesh, that you that was limited by the flesh, has died and been buried with him in baptism. I do want to mention baptism because I know for, it's not, not, not everybody's as familiar with that. Baptism wasn't created by the Christians or even by the Jews. Baptism was, was long understood as a way to mark, guess what, who you were. <laughs> it was a point of identifying what community you were part of, even, even as far back as to where sometimes masters would baptize slaves, and it was a way of saying, I own this person. That's not a good thing. That was a cultural understanding of it. And then for the, for the Jews, John the Baptist was baptizing people, obviously, before Jesus. And the point there was, these are people that are saying they belong to God. These are people who have chosen to identify themselves 
as belonging to God. Well, baptism, like circumcision, is a symbol. And so now he's saying the symbol for baptism, Christians then adopted that because Jesus told them to. And so what we do is when someone does receive Jesus, when they have this circumcision of the heart, we baptize them. We lower them into water and lift them out. And the purpose of that is that lowering in the water is a metaphor for burial. And the lifting them out is a metaphor for resurrection. We don't just metaphorically bury them because then they drown but we also bring them out because Jesus resurrected. He goes on to say that. He's going to tell us that. But here he's making this point. You're the old self ruled by the flesh with no choice has been buried with Christ in baptism. We're told that Jesus became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. We're told that we were crucified with Christ by faith as we embrace the gospel. Part of this infinite depth of a story that's very hard to tell is that we were crucified with him. That we were buried with him in baptism. That old self is dead. It's gone. Paul says that very clearly in Romans. He says, in the same way that Christ died, so also you died. Which is pretty straightforward. He wants us to see the old self obligated to the flesh, not fighting against us, but as dead and buried. He goes on though, and he says, in which you also were raised with him. So we weren't just buried, but we were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. So the gospel has this incredible effect. It isn't just what, it isn't just that Jesus sort of says, well, now I forgive you. And if it was, by the way, I understand why people are like, why on earth did God have to kill his own son just to forgive us? Yeah, that is dumb. (laughs) But there's more going on here. There's something so deep and profound and powerful that it's difficult for us to explain. And so even as we explain it, it may still not quite sound completely coherent to us but it is more than just that that it isn't like god was like well i can't forgive you unless something radically tragic happens that isn't the case it what it says here is that somehow at the cross as jesus dies as we identify with that by faith we also die that old self dies and the new self is resurrected And we are a new people. We're actually going to talk about this more next week. I'm going to give you an illustration some of you have heard, which will help kind of bring some of this together. But I just want you to marvel at the concept for now. I I do want to say this. If if you are somebody who has identified with the gospel, if at some point, and I I believe we have some in our groups who have done this and and have, have increasingly begun to talk as if they identify themselves with what happened at the cross, If you feel like that's where you're at and you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to talk to your group leader. Group leaders, if you know people in your groups who are that way, I want to encourage you to talk to them because there is something powerful about the symbol. You don't have to do it with the whole church. We believe that baptism can be done by any believer for another new believer. So you can just do it in your group if you want to keep it kind of intimate. But but it isn't something you really can do just by yourself because part of the point is to publicly say, this is who I am now. It's just to say that. It's just to acknowledge it. It doesn't change it, but it acknowledges it and it's healthy and it gives us confidence, helps us understand that fullness more. So I just want to throw that in, that that baptism is relevant and important. important. We do believe that. So Paul summarizes this and says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your faith, God made you alive with Christ. Paul also adds another layer to this in which he says that, you know, when you died with Christ at the cross, that self that was obligated to the flesh, he says you might as well describe that self as dead anyway. It was already dead. 
And he says this a lot, many times. And the idea here is that when we were disconnected from God, when we were slaves to the flesh, we couldn't be serving flesh and God. That is not who we were created to be. That's that sort of form of life. Living as a victim to our own desires, says Paul, is not really life. You were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made you alive with Christ. He took you through the burial with him and then raised you up with him to resurrection. This is really the gift of the gospel. This is what the gospel is about. Sometimes, you know, I I think of a very famous, for a lot of you have heard this quote, Paul says in Romans, he says, the wages of sin is death. It's a great phrase. It reminds us that what we earn, a wage is something you earn for something you do. And he reminds us that death isn't something that God just gives us. Death is something we earned. It's the wage of our sin. But then he goes on and he says the gift of God, and he emphasizes by the words he uses, he emphasizes this gift is free. should already be considered that, but it is. He just emphasizes that. This free gift of God is And then he says this, eternal life in Christ Jesus. And most of us cling to that eternal part. We've seen the Highlander movies and other shows and eternity is, that's the cool part. We think we live forever. I mean, we do, but that's cool. We think eternal. We get stuck on that, but actually that's a very small modifier. The really important point of that passage is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life. Now that life happens to be eternal because it's in Christ and Christ is eternal. And actually, it's the nature of life. We don't understand this because we live in a world that's cursed and entropy and death rule. It's the nature of life to be in perpetual motion. It's the nature of life to not go away. That's what real life does. It never stops. And so what that, that's the gift of God. That's the gift of the gospel is life. It's that we are a new nature. We're no longer trapped and victimized by our own flesh. And that's the, that's the point of these passages. That's the point of what he's saying here. And he wants us to grasp this. And then he goes on and describes to us some of the sort of the outworking of that, what that leads to. And he says this. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I want you to notice two things about this paragraph. And this is the last paragraph for this evening. So hang with me for a second. I want you to notice two things about this paragraph. First of all, I want you to notice how encompassing it is. He says, he forgave us how many of our sins? All. It's interesting. Sometimes people will say, after I got saved, I still sin. Am I forgiven for those? And I say, why wouldn't you be? And they say, well, those are kind of future. And I say, how many of your sins, from your understanding of time, were in the future for Jesus when he died on the cross? (laughs) Well, all of them. I mean, that's nonsensical to mark it from our time frame. All of them were in his future. But the truth is that we're looking at time from our limited standpoint. For God, Christ died for sins once for all. There is no sort of this flow here for us. And, And so the thing to recognize is he forgave all your sins. Not just the ones you can forgive yourself for. Not the ones other people can forgive you for. Not the ones that you already acknowledge. Not even the ones you know. He forgave you even sins you have not asked forgiveness for. The truth is, if God actually revealed to us right this moment every sin that we've committed in our lives, I think we would curl up in a little fetal position and die. Because I just don't think we have any concept. And you know what else is amazing? I don't think ever in the span of eternity is God going to ever feel it necessary to make sure that we know what all those were. 
That's just not the point. It just won't matter. He's forgiven us all our sins. And then it says not just that he sort of, he sort of postponed or mitigated or paid off some of our debts. He says he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. He didn't even just pay it off. He canceled it. This is not a stay of execution. It's a complete pardon. In other words, what's on your public record now? Nothing. What's on your big spiritual public record in the sky? Nothing. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge. There is no charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. What condemns you, says Jesus? Not I. And if Jesus doesn't condemn you, says John, then who does? And the answer is nobody, because nobody else has the legal right to do so. He says he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He crucified it, the sin, the charge, the indebtedness, the, the, the evilness, the wickedness. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a transaction which is mysterious and incredible, almost beyond fathoming, but it is what Scripture says. And then he says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Now, Paul is using terminology they would understand. This is what conquerors do, right? They, they disarm the powers and authorities, they make a public spectacle of them. But at the moment at which that happens, that you would see a king doing that, that's when the war is over. That's not in the middle of the war. You don't make a public spectacle of the people that you still have a chance of killing you or taking you prisoner. <laughs> when you're done, that's when you do it. That's when you triumph. That's when you make a public spectacle. He's saying, at the cross, it was done. All those things that you feel victim to, all those things that you feel indebted to, all those things that you feel obligated to, whether it's your own flesh or whatever it may be, Paul is trying to tell us in as many ways as he can, you are no longer a victim to those things. That doesn't mean there isn't a struggle, and it doesn't mean that I don't feel, still feel tired in my body. But it's not who you are. And we'll see that increasingly as the days go by. We'll see that more and more until one day we stand with Jesus and we realize it's all been accomplished. And yes, some days are forward and some days are backwards, but that's the progress. That's the journey. But here's the second thing I want you to see about this paragraph. Not only how encompassing it is, but I just want to ask you this question. Let's just, let me just read it to you one more time and then I'll ask you this question. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. How much of this paragraph are you responsible for? Exactly right, none. How much of this did you do? None. How much of this do you have to do tomorrow? None. How much of this is it important that you do something to maintain? None. It's not your battle. It's not your war. That's weird. It's all about you, but it's not your battle. Jesus fought it. Jesus won it. It's accomplished. That's the point he's making here. See, the good news of the gospel is all about what Christ has accomplished, not about what you've done, not about what you need to do, not what you still have to do. And the point of the fullness is that this same Christ who accomplished all this is completely sufficient for everything for you.
in Christ, you have all fullness. There's nothing left to be done in these regards. I, I, I stress this because it's very easy for us to forget that. It's very easy for us to think that God gave us a leg up and he's just waiting for us to finish the task. One of my favorite things to contemplate is that when Jesus died on the cross, one of the very last things he said, in, 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 and everything he spoke from the cross was painful to speak. Everything he spoke from the cross was an effort. He could have thought all these things. He said them out loud so we'd hear them and we'd have them recorded and we'd know them today. That is the reality. And one of the things he made that painful, incredible, laborious effort to say in a voice loud enough for John to hear was, it is finished. I just love that. Jesus was not saying, I am finished. He was not saying, I'm dead now. <laughs> he was saying, what I came for, the war that I'm fighting, the mission for which I entered the world, it's now completed. You know? I think sometimes some of us think that what Jesus really meant as he's hung on the cross was, now we can get started. But that isn't what happened. He said, it's over, it's done. And all of this is what he completed. Most churches believe in the value of small groups but a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.